from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the annual end of year CER podcast. And I'm very pleased to say that I have with me today Charles Grant, the CER's director, John Springford, the CER's deputy director, and Ian Bond, the foreign policy director. Hi, everybody. And as 2019 draws to a close, we're going to review the state of affairs in Europe over the past year before turning our attention towards the next year and what it might bring. So I'm going to kick off with you, Ian. The first question really is going to be about foreign policy after Brexit in the UK. So how much do you think it's going to change and whether you think that the UK is going to ultimately end up prioritising the need for trade agreements above human rights and sensitive issues like that? Yeah, I think the first part of the year, we'll probably find that uh, the bandwidth for any foreign policy initiatives is going to be quite limited. I think Brexit is still going to be the big issue for the British government, especially if Dominic Raab is reappointed as foreign secretary. He is likely to be focused more than anything else on getting the next stage of Brexit underway. After that, the question is, can the UK be more ambitious and set different foreign policy goals from the rest of the EU? And I think the signs are not really. There are not many issues on which the UK has uh, disagreed with EU policy. And indeed, it's rather been the case that the UK has shaped EU policy in a, a number of areas. What I would anticipate is that as time goes on, we will see that the UK aligns itself with quite a lot of EU policy, whether officially or unofficially. There may be some areas where Britain could do its own thing. I I suspect, for example, that if you look at Turkey, the UK might be less tough on Turkey, seeing its strategic importance to NATO, whereas for the EU, the standoff between Turkey and Cyprus means that it's quite hard for the EU to do anything other than take a strong stance in in support of Cyprus. So that might be one area where the UK could do something a bit different. But by and large, I think it's going to be quite a bit of continuity. In terms of the linkage between foreign policy and trade, certainly when it comes to countries like Saudi Arabia and perhaps also China, I think the UK will have to take into account that it has trade objectives and that those may not be served by criticising the country in question, however bad its human rights record is. Uh, We're seeing a number of examples of how badly the Chinese react to even mild criticism of their policies on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong and so on. The UK, I'm sure, will be taking careful note of that and uh, thinking hard about whether their principles matter more than the need to do something for the British economy. So you just talked about China from the UK perspective, but also how will the EU manage China? And I think one of the bigger questions for me in terms of EU foreign policy is 
whether Joseph Borrell is actually going to be able to fashion the EU into a genuine foreign policy actor or whether the EU is going to continue to be hamstrung by the need for consensus and so on. Yeah, I'm concerned that Borrell's position within the new commission is not that strong. He was not made an executive vice president. Now, arguably, since the role of high representative is set out in the treaty, he doesn't need to be given an extra title to give him authority. But if you look at the way that external relations are divided up among some quite powerful commissioners, including trade and so on, uh, I think there is a definite risk that EU foreign policy remains quite fragmented under, under Borrell. When it comes to the particular question of dealing with China, I think that's even more the case. And that is a a broader problem for the EU because you will have DG Trade on things like 5G, you'll have DG Connect, you'll have the External Action Service, all of whom will want to have some piece of the the pie when it comes to dealing with China. And the Chinese will try to exploit that. I think we can be we can be certain of that. So it is going to be very difficult. On the plus side, I would say that the EU's attitude to China over the last year has probably become more realistic and less euphoric than it was in the in the past. So if you look at the joint communication that the EU put out in March, where it both uh, described areas in which the EU and China could work together, but also described China as a systemic rival. That was a big step forward from anything that the EU had previously said on the subject. So some degree of convergence maybe among member states, but there's also the question about the relationship with the US and the divergence there between European position and the American position, and the question of the sort of fraying of the transatlantic link and whether you think that that unravelling will continue, whether Trump will be still in power in 2021 or whether you think that this is a passing phenomenon yeah i'm just back from washington and even if trump in his all his manifestations is a passing phenomenon the attention that the u.s will be paying to china is not likely to be passing Uh, there seems to be a very broad consensus among both republican and democratic policy thinkers that China is the biggest challenge to the US and that uh, it's something which America has to deal with. And the differences really are in how much you try to enlist the Europeans to work alongside the Americans in tackling the challenges posed by China versus presenting the, the Europeans with a sort of you're either for us or against us choice. The way that Trump expresses himself is unique. But the concerns about China are pretty much across the board. And I think that is something that Europe is going to have to reckon with, whether we're talking about 5G, whether we're talking about uh, the future of the WTO, or whether we're talking about Europe's contribution to global supply chains in which China has has a big part to play and how that impacts on American views of, for example, national security when you're talking about components that go into military systems. Thanks, Ian, for guiding us through the foreign policy landscape this year and next. Um, I think, Charles, you wanted to talk a bit more about Brexit um, and about the domestic situation here in the UK as well. So you've obviously done quite a lot of writing in the past year about Brexit and about the shape of the future relationship between the UK and the EU. And of course, 
That's been subject to a lot of uncertainty because we didn't have the general election results yet. We now have the general election results. Boris Johnson has achieved a landslide victory. His mandate is most definitely secure. The question is now what that means for Brexit and the future relationship. Well, Brexit's going to happen. We now know that at the end of January 2020. But we still don't have much idea about the kind of Brexit we're going to get, particularly how the economy will be affected. It looks like being a rather harder Brexit than that Theresa May would have offered us, because we're going to certainly be out of the single market and out of the EU's customs union. But how, how close our future economic ties are is really open to question. Uh, there's a kind of contradiction in what Boris Johnson has said so far. He said he will not extend the transition period beyond the end of 2020, which really gives him very little time to negotiate a deal. But he's also said he doesn't want to accept what the EU calls level playing field provisions, meaning that the EU would like to align the UK with EU rules on social environmental issues, state aid and taxation, consumer rights and so on. And the trouble is, if you want to do a very quick FTA, a free trade agreement, in less than a year, it's probably just about feasible if you really try very hard, but only if you accept the EU's conditions on the level playing field. Then they'll give you the British an off-the-shelf Canada-style free trade agreement with no tariffs and no quotas. But Boris Johnson says he won't accept level playing field provisions. He says that he wants the right to diverge on regulations with the EU. So if he, if he wants a quick agreement and the right to diverge, he won't get a quick agreement, which makes me worried that there is still a risk of Britain leaving the EU at the end of 2020 without any future economic partnership in place so we just leave on WTO terms very damaging for the British economy and not nice for the EU economy either. I think it's unlikely we'll get to that situation because almost nobody wants Britain to leave on WTO terms except for a minority faction in the Tory party who want a very clean break uh, and a a hard break and a hard Brexit with the EU. What we'll see in the coming weeks and months, and I think it'll become clear quite soon which way he's going to go, is Boris Johnson being pulled and buffeted in several directions. On the one hand, the pressure from the business world and the moderates in his own party, there are still many moderate Conservative MPs in Parliament, to go for a a not very hard Brexit involving some degree of alignment with the EU to avoid particularly a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit would be quite quite strong, strong pressure in that direction. On the other hand, some of the... um, Eurosceptic press and some of the so-called ERG, the hardline faction within his own party, will push very strongly in the other direction for a hard Brexit without much alignment. And so what Boris Johnson does when he's pulled in two directions at the same time, I don't know. If I had to predict, I'd say probably he'll go for a, a not the hardest version of Brexit with some alignment, because I think ultimately it's quite hard for the Tory party to ignore the interests of business. But that's 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 what we'll have to wait and see on that. Just one final point on Brexit. I mean, I think what we at the CR and what Ian Bond has done a lot of work on, what we care about is the future security relationship. And there, I think there are at least perhaps cautious grounds for some optimism. Until quite recently, the European Commission took this line that Britain cannot have a close partnership with the EU post-Brexit on foreign policy, defence or justice and home affairs, because that would create an awful precedent. If the British had, uh, say, a member of uh, a military liaison office in the EU military staff, then Turkey would ask for the same thing. If the British were allowed to man- manage the Galileo satellite programme, then the Americans would ask for a similar role. If the British could be plugged into the Europol police organisation, then Denmark, which is out of Europol, would ask for the same thing. So concerned with precedent, the Commission took a line that really the British should not be allowed to be too close to EU on security cooperation. There has been pushback from the member states in recent months on this. 
which the Commission itself has acknowledged. So I think quite a lot of member states, and I've heard this in recent trips to both France and Germany, are saying post-Brexit, we, it's in everybody's interest to find special bespoke structures for plugging the British into EU security policy cooperation in foreign defence and justice areas. Even if we don't offer such bespoke arrangements to other third parties, the lawyers must find a way of allowing it to happen. The British will, of course, have to compromise and accept a role for the Court of Justice, and they must accept EU data privacy rules. But nevertheless, if there's a will, there's a way, and I think it's looking quite positive for future security cooperation. The one caveat being, back to where I started, if the future economic relationship turns out to be very acrimonious, if there's a bust-up and the British blame the EU for giving them a bum deal, which is causing havoc in the British economy, then that's not the kind of climate you need to get close security cooperation, because close security cooperation requires trust and mutual confidence. And I do worry that the, the problems on the economic relationship may make it difficult to develop the security structures that I think we all would like to see in place. So some very cautious optimism from you. Moving towards slightly less optimistic territory, last year you were quite concerned about the idea of a rudderless Europe, you said, a dearth of leadership on the continent. What is the state now of the Franco-German relationship and also a question about how confident you feel about the ability of the new commission to lead Europe forward? Well, the Franco-German relationship, as you allude to, is really more necessary than ever because Europe needs leadership. It hasn't had a lot of leadership from the institutions or anybody else in recent years. The British are moving out. I think Mrs von der Leyen's got off to a fairly good start and I wish her well, we all wish her well, and she's got a lot of sensible ideas. But the truth is, I don't think the Member States are going to allow the European Commission to lead the EU in the way it was led in the time of Jacques Delors long ago, because they think too many strategic issues are just too important. And when it's whether it's relations with Russia, China or America, the heads of state and government will want to take control and keep the EU Commission confined to a more technocratic role. That's, I think, the trend of recent years, which whatever Mrs. von der Leyen does or does not do, I think is likely to continue. So what you really need is a strong Franco-German relationship. So that's a relationship that's had a very rocky period in recent years. It became very unbalanced when François Hollande was French president because the French economy was poorly performing and he wasn't a very dominant figure in the European Council. Merkel was all dominant. The German economy was doing terribly well. So it became a very unbalanced relationship with Germany calling the shots and France following. I did expect things to become more balanced and in a way on a much more positive when Emmanuel Macron became French president two and a half years ago because he had a lot of ideas very dynamic, energetic figure, and he managed to carry out at least some fairly good reforms to the French economy so that France's economic performance has picked up somewhat vis-a-vis -vis Germany's. Although it's a more balanced relationship now, it's still a very troubled relationship. Part of the reason is structural. Germany basically thinks the EU's okay the way it is. It thinks the Eurozone works pretty well. If some countries don't perform well in the Eurozone, that's their fault for not doing their homework, for not following budget rules, for not carrying out structural reforms. They don't think there's anything fundamentally flawed in the way the Eurozone is put together. And the EU as a whole works quite well for Germany. So they are, as far as the French are concerned, rather complacent. Macron takes the opposite approach. Macron's view is the EU needs radical reform if it's going to survive in a world dominated by strategic actors like Russia, China and the United States. And it needs a stronger Eurozone with radical reforms to the Eurozone. It needs a more coherent strategic approach with a better organised foreign and defence policy and so on. And so the French have lots of ideas for reforming the EU. And the Germans are not responding, which is causing great tension and angst in Paris, which is leading France to take, as the Germans see it, unilateral actions, coming up with lots of ideas right, left and centre, which the Germans get very annoyed about. 
I might just mention some of the ones that where there's the greatest sources of attention at the moment very briefly. Uh, one is on defence, European defence and NATO. When Macron, of course, recently described NATO as brain dead, which upset the Germans because the Germans believe in NATO. And they believe in the EU as a defence organisation as well. And they don't like the fact that the French have a tendency to to sort of put, come up with new ideas like the European Intervention Initiative, which is a, a sub-club of the EU, of half the EU members in it doing stuff together. The French believe that, perhaps in my view rightly, that European defence should be about doing stuff, intervening militarily, actually winning battles, while the Germans are much more concerned to keep everybody together and to organise the right bureaucracy and the right, the right processes uh, in Brussels. So there's a lot of tension on defence. Of course, the Germans don't spend very much either, which adds to the tension. Secondly, enlargement. The French vetoing of the EU's start of accession talks with North Macedonia and Albania went down really badly in Germany. Germany sees the Balkans as a fundamental strategic interest for the future of the EU and didn't like the fact that they were not consulted about this uh, French vetoing of enlargement. And leading on from that, the Germans have a bigger gripe with the French, which is the French, as they see it, the Germans see it, don't take Central Europe very seriously. But I might just mention in parentheses, the CR published a very interesting and thoughtful paper by Zaki Leidy, a very influential French thinker recently, who's quite close to the way that the Macron people think, in my view. It's an excellent paper, but it hardly mentions Central Europe. And to the Germans, that is very revealing that you can have a French thinker thinking about the future of Europe with hardly mentioning Poland or other countries in Central Europe. So I think the Germans have a gripe there. Russia is another issue where Macron has taken a unilateral in initiative to try and bring Russia in from the cold. He says that for strategic reasons, we need to keep Russia out of China's grasp and we need Russia's help to solve terrorism problems in the Middle East and crises. Therefore, let's reach out to the Russians, which is not in, in itself a bad idea at all. The Germans are not against talking to the Russians. They are against the fact that Macron took this idea unilaterally. And the Germans actually tell me they heard about it first from the Finns who got it from the Russians before they heard about it from the French, which is saying something. So that's another source of tension. Then there's the trade issues, of course, whereby the Germans are very worried that Donald Trump will take action against their car industry by putting tariffs on car exports from the EU to the US and that they're quite keen to placate Trump and give him the kind of trade deal he wants while the French insist on excluding agriculture from the, any such trade deal to placate their own farmers which means as far as the Germans are concerned the you Americans are unlikely to be interested in such a trade deal and increases the chances of their car industry being punished so there's tensions on trade and finally although John will say more about this later the, finally it's the Eurozone the French believe in our view at the CR rightly that the Eurozone needs some sort of central stabilisation function to allow countries in difficulty to overcome their difficulties, which is why Macron thought up the idea of a Eurozone budget. But the Germans and their Dutch friends and others who are opposed to Keynesian economics have, have denuded this idea of all strength and vitality. So this little Eurozone budget that will be created isn't enough to make much difference. And there is a fundamental difference between the French and Mario Draghi, the outgoing European Central Bank president, and most Keynesian economists and the CER who do believe you need such a stabilisation function, and the Germans and the Dutch and the Finns and others who think that you don't. So there are all these tensions between France and Germany. Just to conclude, I mean, to be fair to France and Germany, they do manage to work together quite well in some areas, like Brexit itself. They've kept pretty much in, in line with each other on migration issues, uh, on so quite a few issues on dealing with the Ukraine crisis where France and Germany take a lead on behalf of the EU. They've managed to work together and, they, and they, they, of course they will continue working together because there is no alternative. But nevertheless, if you're looking for a strong leadership team in Europe, it's, it's rather a troubled phase. And of course, Brexit doesn't actually help because in this complicated relationship between France and Germany, the British used to provide a kind of safety valve. If one of the France and Germany got fed up with the other, they could go and flirt with the British until the other one came round and was friendlier again. 
but they can't do that anymore. They're just left alone on the high table with each other and nobody else. And of course, the Britain's departure means that Poland, the Netherlands, Spain, uh, Italy, and the other large or middle-sized countries in the EU are even more resentful of Franco-German leadership than they used to be because it's not balanced by the British. So they're all for all sorts of ways, Brexit doesn't help the Franco-German relationship pull through. But I suspect it will in the long run come back in some form stronger than it is now because there really isn't any alternative. Without it, Europe is completely stuck, in my view. John, we've heard from Charles about the tensions in the Franco-German relationship, the differences in economic perspective and in the policy prescriptions. Charles said Germany thinks the Eurozone works well. I'm guessing you don't share that view. What are your economic policy prescriptions for the EU over the coming years? Well, one of the things that's been quite striking since 2015 is how how radical change has become in vogue the, across the West. You know, you've got Trump and, and Macron and, and also Johnson with his Brexit project, all talking a big game about transforming the world and breaking things up and creating something new. And what I'd like to do is just to suggest that the EU resists that temptation and to think of itself as essentially a small c conservative institution, which is about incremental change and which is about preserving what you have, the benefits that you have. And if you think about what the EU's great strengths are or its job is, is to defend openness, promote economic efficiency, constrain nationalism, really, in a very crowded continent with many different countries in it. I mean, it's had some big successes in that kind of defensive program over the last 10 years. It's managed to prevent the breakup of the euro, for example, which is something that we didn't know was going to happen. Migration crisis really tore at the EU in an existential way, and they managed to overcome that. We've had a partial failure with Brexit. So with that kind of conservative framework in mind, it's worth just thinking about some reforms that could be made in three quite important areas, to my mind, of um, economic policy. One, one is the euro, one is climate change, one is regional divergence and changing economic structures within the EU. Um, so on the euro, Charles is absolutely right that the idea that we might have some big you know, fiscal stabilisation function, a budget or, or euro bonds or, or lots of risk sharing, I think is for the birds right now. So the thing to do then is to make progress in an incremental way, there is a possibility, there's a little opening, a chink of light on the banking union. Just recently, the Germans put out a, a non-paper, which is a, you know, a sort of non-binding policy document, an exploration of some ideas on the banking union. And, you know, they, they said, OK, you know, there's a possibility that we might sign up for a big deposit insurance scheme for the Europe's banking sector as a whole. And that was previously a taboo in German policymaking. You know, there's a chink of light there. And if the Commission and other member states could maybe get Italy to come round to accepting at least some ways in which Italian banks could be delinked from the Italian sovereign, you can see the beginnings of a potential step forward there. On climate change, the emissions trading scheme is working again, which is a big shift forward. And that's over the last two years when the Commission has done some good work. There's been big strides in renewables electricity generation across the continent. The International Energy Agency thinks that offshore wind will be able to power the majority of our electricity, or even all of it, by 2040. There's some big strides forward there. The problem is how we decarbonise transport, how we decarbonise buildings, how we do aviation and agriculture, other sectors of the economy than 
energy. And I think it's very unlikely that the member states would allow the EU to have, say, a carbon tax, which covered all of those areas and which really drove investment into low carbon forms of production in each of those areas, simply because, one, it would provoke a backlash against the EU. Two, they don't really like handing fiscal power up to the European Union. So the EU's role, I think, is going to continue to be to try and get member states to agree targets on how they're going to decarbonise and leave the member states to deliver. But it could do more in terms of the funding for science and technology, and there could be stronger um, focus of their regional spending on climate. And that brings me to my last point, which is just about regional policy. One of the things that we've been trying to push here at CER, we wrote a policy brief about it, Christian Nodendahl and I, a few months ago, is that one of the reasons why we're having such a difficult political moment and a difficult political decade is because the modern economy is kind of driving regions of the EU apart. So big superstar cities do really well, they gobble up all of the graduates, they have lots of high value added services companies that are doing well and you know Europe has a lot of those. Whereas left behind kind of post-industrial areas struggle. And it's not nearly as bad in a lot of the EU as it is say in the US or in the UK in particular, but it's certainly something which is getting worse and is likely to continue to get worse. Tackling that is going to be largely national. It's going to be about improving training and education, public transport, security in some regions. There's too much crime, which means that investors are unwilling to put money into a region. But there are things that the EU can do. One of those is climate investment. Climate change action by its nature has to be spread around all sorts of different regions. So, you know, if you're coming up with, say, a new tidal energy scheme, then for it to work, it's got to happen all over the place when when the tide is coming in and when it's going out these happen at different times in different regions and this is also true of lots of other types of electricity generation these tend to happen outside of cities because you need space in order to be able to do it so more climate investment should help to counteract some of these economic effects and then in terms of the eu's own regional spending shifting some of the money from expenditure on physical infrastructure towards human capital and retraining might be helpful and the money that you spend on physical infrastructure, more could be spent on making sure that city regions really work. So local, local transport, so that workers can get into the middle of a city and have a good job and then be able to get out again. In summary, there are lots of small incremental good things that the EU can do. It should absolutely preserve itself and preserve openness within, within Europe. But a real focus on small, practical, achievable goals, I think, would serve it very well. Thanks, John. So the case for incrementalism from John Springford, you had it here first. Charles, very last question of this podcast, which is, what are the plans for the CER in 2020 and what difference is Brexit going to make to us? Well, surprisingly, Brexit actually makes very little difference to the CER, much as we may regret it, and we do. Since we started work in 1998, 22 years ago, We've had two missions at the CER. One is to come up with ideas and policies for making the EU more effective. Whether Britain is inside or outside the EU, that remains a fundamentally important mission which we remain committed to. And as you've probably noticed from the previous comments by my colleagues, John and Ian, most of what the CER is doing is nothing to do with Brexit. We're busy with economic policy in the euro, as John said, with foreign and defence policy, as Ian said. We also have other colleagues working on justice and home affairs and migration, the EU institutions, and so on. So we, we're a broad-based European think tank, and Brexit it is only one of several themes we focus on. So that mission is unchanged. 
The second mission we've always had is also unaffected by Brexit. That is to improve the quality of Britain's relationship with the EU and to help the UK understand the EU and the EU understand the UK. And whether Britain is in or out of the EU, that remains very, very important indeed. So, you know, Brexit doesn't make a massive amount of difference to what we do. But in order to remind people that we're a European think tank and that, in fact, half our researchers are non-British citizens, uh, we have opened offices, as, uh, as many of our listeners will know, in Brussels two years ago and Berlin one year ago. And so more and more of our seminars and events are happening outside the UK, but the headquarters is going to remain in London uh, for the foreseeable future. And um, we'll continue to have the same hallmark for our work, which is we'll produce sensible, sober, clear, rational, unemotional analysis of what's going on in the world without fear or favour. And we will remain independent, we'll remain a source, I hope, of a, an objective source of information and analysis on, on European issues for anybody who's interested. And our, everything is on our website for free. Great. Thank you, Charles. Um, thank you to all of you for that grand sweep of the EU's agenda. And I think, as John said, one thing to be grateful for is that the UK has served as quite a sorry example of what leaving the EU looks like and hasn't emboldened populists as many feared. So for now, Happy New Year from the CER and we'll be back in 2020. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CR underscore EU.